By now, we've all heard the good news. Greenhouse gas emissions plunged about 17% at one point this year, and they should end 2020 about 7% lower than they were in 2019. To avoid a climate catastrophe, all we've got to do is repeat this feat every year from now through 2030. But can we do it without a global pandemic forcing us to? That is going to be one of the interesting things after COVID. I think everybody's just going to go flying everywhere, right? Yeah, I'm reading, a, there's a book called uh, Apollo's Arrow. Have uh-huh. you heard of this one? Apollo's Arrow is a book about how we have historically recovered from pandemics. We basically just go nuts. And there's going to be a lot of extreme um, uh, activity, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, there's going to be, I bet there's a, I bet there's a big spike in birth rates right after yeah. this. People are going to feel more hopeful and, and that's all good in some ways. You, you definitely want, want the mood of the world to improve, but it does have consequences in terms of uh, climate change. Yeah. That's today's guest, Will Burns, who heads the Institute for Carbon Removal Law and Policy at American University. We sat down to look back on the year 2020 through the prism of the United Nations Environment Programs, or UNEP's Emissions Gap Report, which comes out every December ahead of year-end climate talks, which didn't take place this year. The Gap Report draws on research from a bunch of other organizations, like the World Meteorological Organization, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and Climate Action Tracker. The Gap Report frames negotiations by reminding us where the science says we have to get to avoid disaster and how far away our existing climate action plans are. The numbers in this year's Gap Report haven't changed much since 2019. Basically, if you add up all the reductions that all of the countries of the world have pledged under the Paris Agreement, they're still in disaster territory. The gap between where we need to be and where current policies will take us is massive. Calling it a gap is like calling World War II a skirmish. It should be called the Emissions Chasm Report. Humans emitted about 57 billion tons of carbon dioxide in 2019. This is a gas we're talking about. It's not heavy stuff, but we emitted almost 60 billion tons of it. Now, to prevent temperatures from rising to a level 1.5 degrees Celsius, or about 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit, above pre-industrial levels, we've got to get that figure down to 25 billion tons by 2030 and to zero by 2050. But if you add up all of the current NDCs, all of the existing national action plans under the Paris Agreement, we'll still be at the same level we're at now in 2030. And that's assuming we implement the plans. Only half of countries are even doing that. The Paris Agreement actually has two goals. A bare minimum target of 2 degrees Celsius or 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit. And the report says we can get there by reducing emissions 8% per year. But the real science-based target is 1.5 degrees Celsius or about 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit. Getting there will be even harder. But as always, there is hope. Man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization. There's a group of us now who are proposing that the Earth has actually entered a new epoch, and that is the Anthropocene. We know that the enemy is carbon, and we know it's ugly face. We should put a big fat price on it, and of course, add to that 
drop the subsidies. Earth, we broke it, we own it. And nothing is as it was. Not the trees, not the seas, not the forests, farms, or fields. And not the global economy that depends on all of these. But we can restore it, make it better, greener, more resilient, more sustainable. But how? Technology? Geoengineering? Are we doomed to live on a bionic planet, or is nature herself the answer? That's the question we address in every episode of Bionic Planet, a podcast of the Anthropocene, the new epoch defined by man's impact on Earth. And today's guest, Will Burns, has been asking and answering that question from the perspective of international law for decades. Before we dive in, let me just say that 2021 is shaping up as a pivotal year for climate policy. And if you find it all overwhelming, you're not alone. I've been covering this stuff for 20 years, and I left mainstream media 15 years ago because none of the majors were willing to cover it properly. Now they're playing a game of catch-up to try to figure it out. If you think that I'm doing a good job of translating these issues into plain English and putting them into context for you, and you want to hear more, then help me give it to you by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash Bionic Planet. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Bionic Planet. There you can support me for as little as $1 per episode and with a monthly cap. This way, if I don't manage to generate an episode in a month, you don't get charged. And if I go crazy and crank out a dozen, you don't get whacked either. The address again is patreon.com forward slash Bionic Planet. You can also help others find the show by giving me a five-star review on whichever podcatcher you access me through. Remember, the more stars I get, the more ears I get. And the more ears I get, the more minds I can reach. And we have to reach hundreds of millions of minds if we're to meet the climate challenge. We can do it if we all work together. I serve as the co-director of the Institute for Carbon Removal Law and Policy at American University. The Institute is a research center at American's School of International Service that focuses on social, legal, and ethical issues associated with carbon dioxide removal, which is one of the two broad categories of climate geoengineering. And I primarily focus on legal issues, including potentially how we would govern these approaches at the national and the international level. And uh, in addition to that, I'm an academic and I'm currently a visiting professor in the Environmental Policy and Culture Program at uh, Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois. Okay, my alma mater. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'd like to get into a little bit of geoengineering today because I haven't covered it since 2016 or so. But we should really do a separate show just on that. Um, today, we're looking at the emissions gap report, which always comes out right before the COP, right before the Conference of the Parties, the, the big year on climate talks. And the gap reports are usually these big, booming calls to action ahead of the negotiations. And they look at where we need to be to meet the Paris Agreement targets, and then where the existing national climate action plans are NDCs actually stands for Nationally Determined Contributions, where they stand. And then within that, are the countries even achieving their NDCs? 
And the gist, as we'll get into in a bit, is that about half of the countries are achieving them, while half aren't. And even if they all were, the NDCs themselves aren't ambitious enough to get us to the Paris targets. This year's report is different from earlier ones because of the pandemic. There are no year-end negotiations this year, and most NDCs haven't been updated as they were supposed to be, so the gap is about where it was in, in 2019. Also, I should make it clear that the gap only looks at NDCs, which are long-term strategic plans. It doesn't look at the drop in emissions that the pandemic forced on us, because that's like an aberration. That's not something we chose to do. It's something that that happened. And what's interesting about this year's report is that it, it, it provides a summary of other research that's come out about how we can improve NDCs. So it's a, it's a different report than usual, but it's also a lot more accessible than it usually is. It's not as technical. So anybody who has ever read it before who, or who has heard that it's highly technical and difficult to follow, definitely pick it up. I found it very, very easy to read. Now, when, when you and I were talking last night, you had pointed out that there's a lot of good in, in the report and also a lot of disappointment, a lot of optimism, a lot of uh, pessimism. And I wonder if you could just give us a quick overview of what you found hopeful and what you find daunting and what you took home from it. So I guess I'll start with the hopeful. One of the things that this report emphasized, as have other research shops in, in recent uh, months, including the, the Climate Action Tracker folks, is that there's been a massive increase in the last couple of years of net zero pledges by states by 2050. Net zero meaning balancing greenhouse gas emissions with sinks or things that store carbon dioxide, such as soils or forests or the oceans. And as a consequence, Climate Action Tracker and UNEP have both suggested that those pledges could really substantially bend the curve. And Climate Action Tracker even suggested that it could potentially, if faithfully implemented, get us to about 2.1 degrees Celsius by the end of the century, which would be at the upper part of the Paris Agreement's objectives, right? So that's heartening to some degree, right? It seems that Paris and its cooperative framework has uh, substantially increased the impetus for for creating these kind of targets that reflect what the scientists tell us are necessary to achieve at least one of the uh, Paris targets, if not the more ambitious target. The other side of the calculus, however, is that the proof is always in the pudding. And what this report tells us is that a lot of countries are not even on track to meet their nationally determined contributions, the pledges that they make under the Paris Agreement to reduce their emissions. And even if they are, there is still a massive gap between what's necessary to put us on a trajectory to hold temperatures to below two degrees Celsius and what countries have been willing to do to date. And so what it suggests is that if it's easy for politicians to say, what should happen in 2050 because virtually all of them realize that they'll either be dead or not in, in office or both and 
taking the actual short-term actions that are necessary to structurally transform the economy. And if you fail to do that, the already daunting reductions in emissions that have to occur, but maybe 7% a year by this point, which is virtually unprecedented, escalate to 9 or 12% a year. And from a political and an economic standpoint, they become impossible. The, the other thing I think that the report emphasizes that is more discouraging is that we haven't yet seen those kind of commitments being made uh, by politicians on the ground right now to really make the these uh, net zero pledges a reality. Yeah, and that's something that reiterates some findings that we had or some opinions that we found back in April when the pandemic was just kicking in and you had all these pictures of empty streets and people saying, oh my God, emissions, there's going to be a blessing in disguise. And we surveyed developers of forest carbon projects. More than 70% of the developers we talked to said that COVID-19 was likely to distract from efforts to implement a long-term solution, while less than 15% said it would raise awareness. And that's what they're saying as well, isn't it? They're saying that, okay, COVID-19 came along, the pandemic came, we've had a drop in emissions forced on us, but we haven't sat down and come up with a long-term plan. And how are we going to reduce emissions by the same amount every year that we reduce them by this year? according to a plan. It's just, it's, and it's, that is sort of what they're saying here, right? Yeah, they absolutely are. In fact, one of the things, one of the statistics that jumped out to me was they said that if we don't uh, take this opportunity with all of the money that we're spending for COVID relief to seek to, among other things, structurally decarbonize the world's economy, the impact of the COVID-19 decline in, in greenhouse gas emissions, which has been about 7% this year and maybe a few percentage points the next couple of years, ultimately will only reduce temperatures in the year 2050 by 0.01 degrees Celsius. So it's nothing. Right. So it affords us an opportunity, as the report suggests, as an extensive chapter, right, on analyzing what we're doing with the COVID relief money and what we could be doing with the COVID relief money to help us decarbonize the economy. But it also suggests that a lot of countries don't seem to be committed to that at all. And, and as a consequence, it may be an opportunity that's that's being lost and we'll start partying like it's 1999 again soon and return back to the emissions trajectories that we saw. And the report emphasized that in the last decade, emissions have been growing by about 1.4, 1.5% annually. And you have some countries, European Union, the United States, who have seen their emissions drop. The, the reasons for it, the U.S. drops and the actual science behind them is somewhat questionable. There are questions of, of whether we're adequately counting uh, fugitive methane emissions, for example, from fracking and so forth. But even assuming our emissions are dropping and those of the EU are dropping, the reality is that in the developing world, many of them, the Chinas, the Brazils, the South Africas, are following the same development path as we did, and their emissions are burgeoning. And if they can't arrest those emissions, it could be catastrophic for the entire world. It's so frustrating. You know, we've got this opportunity to, to avoid the mistakes of the past and to grow sustainably and to build back better. And everyone knows that these slogans are everywhere, but it's mostly just words. And that brings up two components of the report that I wanted to make sure we dug into before we started um, digressing. One is the different emissions 
currently by country and, and per capita. I, I encourage anyone who's listening to dig up the, get the report. You can get it online. It's very easy to find. And look for figure 2.2. This shows that China is the highest emitting country, and we hear this all the time on a national basis. But on a per capita basis, among the six highest emitting countries, at least for industrial emissions, the United States is still the worst, and Russia is right behind us. Now, there are some places I know, in, I think in the Middle East, there are some countries that have higher per capita rates, but their total national emissions don't put them into the top six, so they're not included there. But basically, on a, on a per capita basis, among the six largest emitting nations in terms of industrial emissions, I just want to emphasize that it leaves land use out, the United States is the worst, Russia right behind, then comes Japan, then comes China. So that's the first component. The other component is the differentiation between emissions generated through consumption and emissions generated through production. So we here in the United States and Europe, we've reduced our direct emissions a bit, but if we're eating beef that, that came uh, at the expense of tropical forest, then we're just exporting our emissions. And China does it too. I mean, even though they're, they're planting trees like crazy at home, uh, they're also importing products from higher deforestation areas. And my, my mask keeps hitting my microphone here. Um, and I, anyway, I wonder if we could start by unpacking the policy implications of this dynamic. Yeah, it's absolutely uh, 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 true. And it's been happening for a while. Happened in other contexts also. It always seems to be the way uh, that the developed world responds to environmental issues. I remember back in the 1970s uh, when we had things like Times Beach and other kinds of, of toxic disasters in this country. Uh, it was a moment where the U.S. could have said, we're going to have to figure out how we reduce uh, toxic waste production or how we effectively contain it in this country. Or uh, our alternative is to simply ship it elsewhere. And uh, we and the Europeans both made that decision. And a lot of the toxic disasters that occurred in places like Africa uh, that, that accepted uh, that waste uh, was the manifestation. In some ways, this is, uh, albeit a more insidious form, the same thing, which is exporting our environmental maladies to other countries and then arguably using accounting procedures that, that cover that up. There has been talk of requiring countries to, to include include the consumption emissions, right, in their reports. Uh, but there's been a lot of political opposition for obvious reasons to doing that. That also brings yeah. up the issue of corresponding adjustments. And there was an interesting piece that Charlotte Streck, you know Charlotte, mm -hmm. she wrote for us at Ecosystem Marketplace, where she was basically saying that to require corresponding adjustments, especially for voluntary carbon projects, is a little bit counterproductive. Corresponding adjustments are one of the more controversial proposals in climate finance today, at least when applied to voluntary carbon markets. Under Article 6 of the Paris Agreement, national governments that finance emission reductions in other countries can, if they want, deduct those emissions from their own carbon accounting, provided the other country adjusts theirs accordingly, hence the name, corresponding adjustments. In such a case, the emission reduction becomes an internationally transferred mitigation outcome, or ITMO. Now, corresponding adjustments are a way of tracking national emissions. 
but there's a lot of controversy over proposals to require them for voluntary markets, which, by definition, are used to promote climate action beyond the law. Now, I'll pick this theme up when the interview resumes, but I'd like to do a show just on corresponding adjustments. It's a lot of work, though, breaking something complex like this down into simple language without making it too simple. If you think I'm doing a good job translating these issues into plain English and putting them into context, and you want to hear more, then help me give it to you by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash bionic planet. There you can support me for as little as $1 per episode and with a monthly cap. This way, if I don't manage to generate an episode in a month, you don't get charged. And if I manage to crank out a dozen of them, you don't get whacked either. The address again is patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. Patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. When the interview resumes, you'll hear me referencing an article by Charlotte Streck. If you want to check out the article yourself, it's at Ecosystem Marketplace, and it's called Corresponding Adjustments for Voluntary Markets. Seriously? The author is Charlotte Streck, who heads the Climate Focus Environmental Think Tank. And the example she used was if you are, uh, say, a German automaker, and you're voluntarily reducing your emissions inside Germany by changing the way you make cars, you know, more renewable energy, more efficiency, etc., those reductions will show up in Germany's national carbon inventory, and the country can report them as a national success. Nobody's going to say that Germany is somehow cheating by putting that reduction into their national accounting. But but what if the company, the German company, decides to offset the rest of its emissions by supporting a forestry program in Zambia? I think that was the example she used in the piece, uh, was Zambia, maybe Zimbabwe. Anyway, here's an example where a wealthy industrial company is helping a poorer country reduce its emissions by saving endangered forests. In today's voluntary markets, a German company can, can claim that it's carbon neutral, but at a national level, the reductions are credited to Zambia and not Germany, and everything's okay. But if you require... A corresponding adjustment, she pointed out, and this is you know, one thing people are talking about now, Zambia will get shortchanged and I'd, because Germany will get credit for the reduction because a German company paid for it, even though the reduction took place in Zambia, and even though Zambia will probably had to at least stay out of the way or somehow facilitate this. Now, what you're really doing in a case like this is you're applying a higher standard to the developing countries, and you're taking away a tool from them that would enable them to reduce their emissions even further. It's, it's one of these things where you're imposing purity and you're trying to make everything perfect. You know, it's the, the whole perfect being the enemy of the good kind of thing. Yeah, I think that's right. And again, it's uh, developed countries, I think, working politically to try to appear to be doing more than they actually are in terms of addressing climate change. And since they often control the kind of abstruse accounting mechanisms that drive these regimes, uh, they get to uh, define things in a way that's most favorable to their interests. I'm wondering if, before we go a little, little further into the details, maybe back up just a bit and look at what 
the emissions gap report tells us. And they've got this definition, and I'm just read directly from the report. It says the emissions gap for 2030 is defined as the difference between global total GHG emissions from least cost scenarios that keep global warming to below 2 degrees Celsius, 1.8 degrees Celsius, or 1.5 degrees Celsius with varying levels of likelihood. And the estimated global GHG emissions resulting from a full implementation of the NDCs. Can we unpack that? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it is quite a mouthful. So obviously the temperature objectives that they're looking at, uh, the 1.5 and the 2 track the Article 2 objectives of the Paris Agreement to hold temperatures well below 2 degrees Celsius and at least aspirationally hold them to 1.5. And then presumably the 1.8 is the midpoint between those, right? What they're looking at is they're saying the most cost-effective ways and trajectories in terms of emissions to that would meet those objectives based on what science tells us, uh, calculating radiative forcing at this point, and what the countries have pledged to do. The NDCs are their nationally determined contributions. And as Paris is different than Kyoto, Kyoto was a top-down agreement that mandated certain reductions in emissions on individual countries. Because that didn't work well, they decided under Paris that the best idea might be what they call a bottom-up agreement with countries making pledges of what they're actually willing to do. And so those translate into these nationally determined contributions. So the gap is the difference between what countries have said that they will do. And those contributions are divided into two kinds. There's uh, conditional and unconditional or without any other conditions uh, applying. Uh, requirements of financial aid, for example, in some cases, or certain efficiencies being achieved. But it's the difference between the pledges that they've made and what that would result in terms of emissions and what emissions are actually necessary to keep us on track to meet those uh, temperature objectives under Paris. So the unconditional NDCs, at least, are consistent with uh, limiting warming to about 3.2 degrees Celsius by the end of the century. And even if you get all of the conditional NDCs put into place, it only reduces temperatures to about 0.2 degrees Celsius below that. Mm -hmm. So three degrees Celsius is potentially catastrophic for some of the most vulnerable countries in the world. And the current policy scenario results in greater emissions by 2030. And so the report says that if this were to continue until the end of the century, it could result in a temperature rise of about 3.5 degrees Celsius. So extremely serious. And if two degrees is where the models go haywire, we don't know what's going to, you know, iterative effects and feedback loops and everything else. So two, two degrees may as well be four. Yeah. Then that's where geoengineering comes in. There's always this tension between talking about about what kind of solutions might exist. You know, it's like talking to a chain smoker about, okay, keep smoking and maybe we'll have this cure for you in the, down the road. What are some of the alternatives if we, for reversing 
climate change using sinks and stuff like that. Yeah. So there's two broad categories of climate geoengineering. And climate geoengineering is just broadly defined as intentional large-scale interventions that to address uh, climate change. So the first of these categories is what we call solar radiation management approaches, or SRM. And solar radiation management approaches seek to reduce the amount of incoming solar radiation, or we call that insolation. And the idea is if there is less incoming solar radiation to be trapped by the greenhouse gases, it exerts a cooling impact, right? There's less radiative forcing in the atmosphere. The the second broad category is uh, entirely different. It's called carbon dioxide removal or CDR. The idea here is instead of trying to reduce the amount of incoming solar radiation, we try to reduce the amount of atmospheric carbon dioxide by techniques that can actually take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and we can then sequester that carbon dioxide such as in terrestrial areas such as abandoned coal mine seams or oil fields or stored in the world's oceans or utilize it for things such as uh, synthetic fuels or high strength materials, carbonated beverages and, and so forth. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change in its last assessment report ran uh, large numbers of models to to see under what scenarios we could hold temperatures to below two degrees Celsius. And of all the models they ran, they only found 203 of those models that achieved that. Of those 203 models that they ran, 187 of those models, so about more than 85% of those models, assumed that the only way that we could achieve below two degrees Celsius was large-scale carbon dioxide removal. And when they define large-scale, they mean somewhere between 10 and 20 gigatons or billion tons of carbon dioxide being removed from the atmosphere. That's 10 billion. Huh? That's 10 or 20 billion. Uh, 10 to uh, 10 to 20 billion mm-hmm. uh, tons annually uh, that would have to be removed from the atmosphere simultaneously with aggressive decarbonization if we're to have a reasonable chance of holding temperatures below two degrees Celsius. So in many ways, no pun intended, carbon dioxide removal is baked into climate policymaking, whether (laughs) we know it or not or like it or not, right? Mm -hmm. Now, solar radiation management um, is different. That's not discussed very often, but many believe because carbon dioxide removal approaches, things like planting trees or utilizing something called direct air capture, which are technologies that can remove carbon from the atmosphere and filter it out and store it. Many believe that those approaches are so slow in terms of the temperature reductions that they can effectuate that we will probably need solar radiation management approach as a stopgate measure to to buy us time. But and so some of the solar radiation management approaches that are most prominently being discussed include something called sulfur aerosol injection, which is 
is putting uh, large amounts of sulfur dioxide particles into the atmosphere, into the stratosphere. And when they oxidize, they're highly reflective and they could reflect a, a small percentage of incoming solar radiation back to space and theoretically return temperatures back to pre-industrial levels. The other major solar radiation management approach that's uh, widely discussed is called marine cloud brightening. The idea is to spray uh, salt water into low-level maritime clouds, increasing their nucleation, which makes them brighter and uh, reflect incoming solar radiation away. And again, uh, some researchers believe that you could do that to an extent that would return temperatures back to pre-industrial levels. Yeah, we definitely have to devote a whole episode to this. It's a fascinating subject. These technologies have theoretically been around for a while. Right. And I mentioned earlier, my first episode, my first uh, podcast was with Gernot Wagner, who you know now at, at Harvard, I think. And we do have this reticence about counting, re relying on that. We don't want to have that as this reassure ourselves that we can turn to it. But now, as you pointed out, we, we have no choice. We have to have removals in there somewhere, mm -hmm. or we have to have some kind of geoengineering. Of the two, of removals versus reflection, or what, I guess whatever the technical term is, again, I always forget, but it's, I, th I think of it as reflecting. You're reflecting yeah. the heat away as opposed to sucking the carbon out of the atmosphere. You know, how, which do you see as the most, having the most potential, and how far, ha have there been any new developments in the last couple of years? I really haven't kept up on, on it as I should. It seems like just as it was starting to accelerate and go from being theory to something that could be practiced is when I stopped paying attention. Yeah. So maybe you can tell me what's new. Now, let me start with that question of potential because it's a, it's an interesting question in some ways. The, uh, the paradox in some ways is, or the reality, is that some of the approaches that are probably less risky, which are most of the carbon dioxide removal approaches, are unfortunately the slowest and some of the approaches that would have very quick results and thus could again fulfill this stopgap measure are the solar radiation management approaches, but they have the highest risks in many ways. If you put large amounts of sulfur aerosols into the stratosphere, for example, you could potentially alter regional precipitation patterns to the point where you might shut down the monsoon in South Asia on a regular basis, right? And this is a, a, a phenomena that a billion people rely on for their sustenance. You could deplete the ozone layer to the point where it, it doesn't recover from pre-industrial levels, which it's starting to do as a result of the Montreal Protocol, for an additional... And the, the Montreal Protocol, just to clarify, oh, was the one that... Uh, it was a treaty to uh, reduce the uh, ozone-depleting substances that uh, were, were causing the depletion the of the ozone. The chlorocarbons. And the chlorocarbons and the other halines and so forth. Mm -hmm. And it's possible, though... Uh, that it could delay recovery of the ozone layer by 30 to 70 years. So you're talking millions of additional cases of skin cancer and other impacts. And also, it's possible that you could get something called the termination effect. If you allow greenhouse gases to continue to build up, but you put this protective umbrella in place so we no longer feel those effects, what happens if you uh, stop using that, that technology? And you might stop using it because a nuclear armed countries like India takes umbrage at having the monsoon shut down on a regular basis, threatens the world with war and we stop using it, or it might stop working. We're not entirely certain 
whether these approaches are viable in the long term, given all the biogeochemical feedbacks that occur when you start introducing it in the stratosphere. What happens if you stop using it and you had this buildup of greenhouse gases, but it was all being masked by this sulfur? You get these huge feedback mechanisms that, that occur, and they occur very rapidly. And some studies have said that within 20 years, you could see temperature increases of 6 to 10 degrees Celsius. And put that in perspective, that would be increases in temperature 20 times greater than if you never intervened. So it'd be catastrophic. You'd never be able to adapt to those kind of changes. And then the last thing that we worry about is, and we worry about this with both carbon dioxide removal and solar radiation management, is something called the moral hazard, which I think you alluded to before, which is if we no longer believe we're feeling the manifestations of climate change, we might even reduce our commitments to reducing emissions even more than the, the tepid reactions that we have now. And, and in the long term, if we did that, what it would require us to do is put more and more sulfur into the stratosphere to try to save us. And the more you put in, the more these negative impacts that I talked about could manifest themselves and creates a bit of a sword of Damocles that people want to avoid. So many people say carbon dioxide removal approaches are safer. The problem with the carbon dioxide removal approaches beyond them being slow, they might reduce temperatures by about 0.1 to 0.2 degrees Celsius per year. So it could take a long time before you really saw really substantive impacts is that they're not without risks either, right? If you're planting huge amounts of forest, for example, you may be displacing savannas and prairie grasslands that are high in biodiversity. You may be displacing people who rely on those areas for uh, their livelihoods as a consequence of planting trees. You may be planting trees in areas like boreal regions where because you reduce the reflectivity of the surface, you get more incoming solar radiation absorbed by the trees and it offsets all of the benefits of tree planting or it results in a net increase in warming. Some of these other approaches... Such Just to as, clarify, because that is really fascinating, this yeah. idea that, I mean, you've got the trees, it's almost like... Both of the issues we just talked about, the radiation and the heat and also the carbon. So the, you might have trees absorbing carbon, but if they're in an area where you have a lot of snow in the winter, now instead of nice bright snow, you've got a dark object that's absorbing the heat. That's what yeah, you're talking about. That's, that's right. And it, it's true in those areas. Some of the other areas that we talk about planting trees, we're always looking for areas that are quote unquote non-productive, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, so that's one of the reasons there's all this focus on ice regions. There's also a lot of discussion of using scrublands and deserts. But the problem again is scrublands and deserts have high albedo or reflectivity of solar radiation. Now you put trees on them, again, it can offset at all, most or more than the benefits you get of storing carbon dioxide. So the science can be tricky with that approach. Direct air capture, which is this idea of creating these things called artificial trees that have filters on them. And the ambient air enters those filters, you separate out the CO2, and then you can store the CO2. The problem with that approach may be uh, very high costs, 
at least up until recent, recently, we've talked about costs of between $600 and $1,000 per ton of carbon captured. The current price of carbon, even in the European Union, is like $30. So there's going to be no incentives for those. The other problem with this approach that may be a, the greater approach is it require huge amounts of energy, especially to what's called regenerate, separate out the, the CO2 from the filters. And uh, if you use fossil fuels for that, you're going to have huge additional amounts of emissions. If you use renewables, the argument that some people make is that you might require 25, 50% of your renewable energy to go into this process. And it might make more sense for us to just focus on decarbonizing the economy with renewables instead of uh, using what some would think is a Rube Goldberg sort of device of addressing climate change. All of these approaches need to be looked at in earnest, as I said, because you're absolutely right. Right? We've diddled for so long that we now have to look at things that at one point just seem fanciful and abhorrent to us. But at the same time, we have to adequately characterize these things, determine if the science is sound, and also look at the potential negative environmental and social implications. Because all of them, including all the carbon dioxide removal approaches, have, have those kind of risks. Yeah, and that's just this thing brings us back to the report as well. Is this we've diddled so long, it mm-hmm. gets harder and harder each year. Yep. And then pretty soon it's going to be impossible. So right, right now we're in this situation where we've got this, we've got to do what we've done this year, every year in terms of emission reductions. Right. And the quicker we get there, the next 10 years, everyone's talking about 2050 and thinking about getting to net zero by 2050. But the faster we move right now, in the next 10 years, the easier the next 20 are going to be. Yeah, right. And the, and the converse is, is that if we don't move fast in the next 10 years, it really becomes impossible. And I'm afraid the world will just throw its, its, its arms up. If you go another 10 years with the same emissions trajectory as we have now, instead of having to reduce emissions by 7% a year, which is essentially what COVID will have done with huge negative economic implications that we're suffering through, you then will reach a point where you're looking at 9%, 12% a year. And that, that just becomes economically and politically impossible. So at some point, the world community probably just says, in some ways, as, a, as an analogy to COVID, we're just going to learn to live with it. But as we know, living with COVID has turned out to be catastrophic, right? And uh, Yeah, and, and we were lucky. It wasn't as bad as it could have been. It wasn't as lucky. But, but it hasn't been yet. But unlike COVID, where it looks like we'll have a vaccine in the next year, there's no vaccine to address climate change. You're not mm-hmm. going to be able to just magically make it go away. And so we need to to structurally bend the curve at this point. And that's a big part of what the report emphasizes. I think it does a good job as it says, as catastrophic and tragic as COVID-19 has been, one of the potential benefits is we're about to infuse large amounts of money into the economy to try to stimulate jobs and, and tax revenue. And there are golden opportunities to do things like re- invest in renewables and energy efficiency and to try to educate people about altering their lifestyles to reduce their carbon footprints in ways that can be transformative. Or we can simply, in, in many ways, squander that money. And un- the unfortunate part, though, is that the study can Includes that most of what we're doing now is is simply uh, adopting status quo economic models that will do very little, if anything, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. 
Yeah, reading from the report, it says, I'm just going to read that the yeah. relevant passage here, only a few countries have transformed green rhetoric into low-carbon recovery measures, that is, measures that lead to a reduction in GHG emissions. For most, recovery spending has mostly been high-carbon, that is, implying negative net effects, GHG emissions, or neutral, that is, having no discernible effect on GHG emissions. And the report makes it very clear that right now there is this talk about building back better, we here in the U.S., we've got Biden coming in. It does feel different, but at the same time, they're saying we're not seeing the difference. Do you, do you think we really are going to get our act together? And where do you think the money should go? Yeah, it's going to be difficult. Uh, again, if you're talking about needing reductions of, of 7% in emissions, 9% in emissions, right? The same amount that we got when the economy essentially shut down for a while, right? Uh, you can't turn on a dime. And no matter how much you talk about building back better, even if you actually do uh, effectuate some of the structural changes that UNIP, the UNEP report talks about, it's going to be a while before you bend that curve, right? That's one thing to emphasize. And the problem is that we don't have the luxury of time anymore. If this were 1980 and we were this enlightened, uh, great. But we've wasted 40 years, 50 years, despite knowing since the 60s, really, that the scourge of climate change was going to be visited upon us. On the other hand, some of the good news is that the the COVID relief package uh, that was passed, and, and the UNEP report doesn't capture that because it, it stops, I think, in October uh, or November. I think it went up to November. Yeah. yeah. Uh, is there's a large trash of funds in there, billions upon billions, tens upon billions for uh, uh, extending uh, uh, tax credits for renewables, increasing funding for research and development on renewables and energy efficiency, and a, a large infusion of money for carbon dioxide removal approaches that we talked about, including direct air capture, also for carbon capture and sequestration, which is a technique to capture greenhouse gas emissions when you uh, combust fossil fuels, such as coal or oil, for example, or in industrial processes. That could help us to, to bend the curve uh, further. But it's going to be an extremely difficult battle. We don't, in, in the United States, have a, a price on carbon that really right. reflects the impacts that occur. And so industry doesn't have the incentives uh, to be addressing uh, those issues in a way uh, that should reflect the science. And mm -hmm. unfortunately, putting a real price on carbon, which is probably should be somewhere between 100 to $150 per ton at this point, uh, is probably not politically viable, especially with a divided Congress. Even if we get a 50-50 a Senate, which would give incoming President Biden more leverage, it's likely you're still going to have a lot of Democratic senators from red states, for example, that are not going to be willing to go along with really substantive measures such as carbon taxes, for example, which we probably should be imposing to, to address climate change. It's, uh, I think it's heartening to, that President Biden, President-elect Biden has emphasized that climate change is one of his top priorities, that he's put people like former Secretary of State Kerry in a position to help negotiate at the international level. We've announced our intention to, to re-enter Paris. 
and and he has embraced elements of the, of the Green New Deal uh, that that emphasize uh, uh, the need for decarbonizing the economy. Uh, I think there's going to be a lot of uh, political hurdles and economic hurdles uh, to move quickly. And again, uh, at this point, uh, moving quickly is, is what we need, probably far too quickly for the political system to accommodate. Wow. <laughs> yeah, but that's where leadership comes in, though, right. too. We keep hearing about what's politically feasible and what isn't, and that's something that we've seen the past year with the beginning with, with COVID-19, we saw countries that have leadership managed to deal with it fairly well, countries that had poor leadership didn't. Two common analogies I keep hearing is the Marshall Plan and also the moon launch. And yep. when Kennedy yep. said we're going to the moon, he didn't know how we were going to get there, but he got people excited about it. That's right. It can be done. Uh, the, the question is whether it, that issue is of sufficient salience in the United States. Do the American people care enough about it uh, that it, it can become a centerpiece? One of the things that the report points out when you're talking about leadership is there are countries uh, that are uh, taking the COVID relief money, for example, and helping uh, to further elevate uh, climate in their agenda. The, the, there's a chart in there that looks at uh, some of the states that are really moves, moving in the positive direction, including Germany and France in the European Union in ways uh, that we certainly haven't done in the last four years. There, there are opportunities. We're going to have to figure out a way to craft solutions that are palatable across the political spectrum that provide incentives both for Democrats and Republicans to buy into uh, to some of the the more substantive measures in the Green New Deal that might be necessary to really hold temperatures to below two degrees Celsius. And we'll see if we have the resolve. COVID in some ways, as the UNEP report indicates, is an opportunity, but of course it's also a massive distraction, right? It's gonna be years before our economy recovers uh, from the manifestations of COVID, our medical care system and so forth. Uh, there's probably gonna be a natural inclination after mass vaccination for uh, large amounts of spending and travel yeah. and things like that. And the UNEP report uh, has an entire chapter this year on travel or on, uh, on the transportation sector. And one of the things it emphasizes is that uh, uh, air travel and transport and maritime transport um, are, are a substantial contributor in terms of greenhouse gases, and it's growing rapidly, right? Uh, my guess is that post-COVID, a lot of the pent-up demand for travel uh, and and uh, transport of goods and things like that is going to manifest itself in substantial increases in greenhouse gas emissions. So we're going to, again, have to look at the recommendations of that UNIP report about how we start to bend the curve in that sector also if we're going to grow economically and simultaneously reduce greenhouse gas emissions. That is going to be one of the interesting things after COVID. I think everybody's just going to go flying everywhere, right? Uh, yeah, I'm reading a, there's a book called called uh, Apollo's Arrow. Have uh -huh. you heard of this one? No. I forget the guy's name. He's a, a, a Greek doctor 
and he was looking back at past pandemics and he talked about that's basically what happens is when they're over. Yeah, that's how we got the Roaring Twenties. Exactly, came yeah. out of the 1918. And right, and we got the Roaring Twenties and unfortunately then we got the 30s, so who knows, exactly, yeah. right? <laughs> and, he, and he goes back centuries. He talks yeah. about back in the Middle Ages when yeah. you have a plague and then when it was done, yeah, priests and nuns were having orgies. It yeah, was right, just, <laughs> it's just, uh, and I, I think that's what's going to happen. There's going to be a lot of extreme um, uh, activity, right? Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. There's going to be. I bet there's a. I bet there's a big spike in birth rates right after yeah. this. People are going to feel more hopeful, and and that's all good in some ways. You you definitely want want the mood of the world to improve, but it does have consequences in terms of uh, climate change. Yeah, and one one of the things that we could all do to, I guess, the biggest contribution we could make is to have fewer children. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but that's. Uh, Again, I suspect we're going to see we're going to see a, a spike. It'd be interesting to watch to look back now and see if because everybody is trapped in their homes, if there's been an increase in birth rates during this time. You know? Yeah, that's what they're. I know in Germany they're talking about the COVID Kinder, but at the same time, I've read another report that said they think people because they're depressed, they're yeah. not. They're stuck at home with their spouse. It's not like they're not having as much. Yeah, I I suspect that on balance that's what's true. There's probably a decrease increase in sex mm-hmm. and, and uh, there's such a lack of hope right now that people yeah. probably don't want to bring children into the world the converse after we're vaccinated will be right yeah, the, another baby boom yeah so they all these things have implications yeah yeah that's was that was not the basis of uh, kondratiev and his wave yeah. theory yeah it was yeah you know. <laughs> Nikolai Kondratiev was a Soviet economist who believed that long-term economic cycles were tied to periods of innovation, optimism, and (laughs) baby-making. I I won't be doing a show on him, but I am planning a ton of cool shows in 2021, and I'll be posting a wish list of programs in the next few weeks at bionic-planet.com. Once again, that's bionic-planet.com. You can view this list as my conditional NDC. I'll achieve it if you help me by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. That's patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. There you can support me for as little as $1 per episode and with a monthly cap. This way, if I don't manage to generate an episode in a month, you don't get charged. And if I manage to crank out a ton of episodes, you don't get whacked either. The address again is patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. Now back to Will Burns as we wrap up our discussion by looking at the United States. Despite ourselves, we've seen emissions uh, reductions uh, in the last decade. Uh, we would be on track right now to implement the Kyoto Protocol, even though we're not part of it. But again, as I said, one thing that's tricky about that is if the methane emissions rate is above 3% for fracking, it can be worse to engage in natural gas fracking than coal. And of course, during this administration, they worked assiduously to to gut uh, reporting requirements. It's that Trumpian philosophy that if if it's if the information is not reported, it's not happening. Yeah. So one worries about whether we're actually on track. And of course, the other thing the report points out is that by the time you get to 2025, our current pledges do not put us on track to meet the, the our Paris obligations. 
Yeah, yeah. The issue of fugitive bethane is just yeah. is because it's not just Trump. It's a it's yeah. a whole. It's and fugitive methane. Just to clarify, is when you have something like a leak, where mm-hmm. you have something, you're, it it escapes uh, from and you know, it gets into the atmosphere, and it's just not accounted for. But it's still up there. It exists. Yeah. Why is it not accounted for? Right. A lot of it's uh, political, right? Uh, uh, if Given the fact that methane has a global warming potential of 24, so each molecule of methane uh, has a warming impact that's 24 times greater than and one molecule. in the molecule. short term, it's, right. higher. it's like 80. CO2. Yeah, right. In the short term, yeah, this is a 100-year thing, but spectra. But yeah, in the shorter term, it's much greater. Industry realizes that if that's reported, it's going to make uh, fracking and natural gas, which has been touted as a real success story in the United States, it's a bridge fuel, look a lot less bridgy. And so that's why the Obama administration developed reporting standards toward the end of its term. And it took a long time to get because politically it was such a hot potato. And then the Trump administration essentially rolled those back. I don't think we entirely know what's happening, right? And methane methane is a scary story in general. If you look in the world in recent years, for a number of years, methane emissions had gone down in the last decade, right? Um, And now uh, they're increasing substantially. And a lot of people think one of the reasons is U.S. fracking operations that have substantially escalated coal in places like China and so forth. But a lot of studies say that if we don't address and redress the substantial rise in methane quickly, it will ensure that we pass the two degrees Celsius threshold in itself. Yeah, because it, then, you, then you start getting into all these different iterative effects. You get mm-hmm. you start and the methane released from the tundra from yeah. That's right. You get that. There's also evidence that there's other feedback mechanisms associated with uh, hydroxyl radicals and things like that in the atmosphere uh, that could accelerate warming as a result of what methane is doing in the atmosphere. It's a big deal, and it's not discussed that often because carbon dioxide is all, is always the 10,000-pound elephant in the room, but methane is, is a smaller elephant, but, uh, but <laughs> a frightening one also. Yeah, because it can blow up really. Yeah. It's a puffer fish. It's a puffer elephant. Yeah. <laughs> Before we wrap up, I wanted to make sure we touched on two issues that we've been dancing around. Yeah. One critique I've gotten is I focus more on almost too much on offsetting, which I think is just because of the background that this grew out of. But I do think it's important to look at this issue that's happening in the offsetting sector right now. Mm-hmm. There is the growing sense that offsetting should only be used for removals and not for reductions. And I'm wondering if you had a stance on this, because I guess the way I see it is for the next 10 years, we need them both. We need them very aggressively. We need to use the ability of offsets to funnel money into the most cost-effective reductions. And then at the same time, we need to reduce by fixing our factories and purging deforestation, all, all that stuff. And then at the same time, we need to somehow promote some sort of finance that will go into removals, because if we do our job right in the next 10 years, we're going to really need to ramp up re- removals after that. And that's where I think offsetting is really going to help get us to zero. That's how I envision it. Yeah, I think that's consistent with our position also. I think what what our institute is trying to do and, and, and others, including governments and NGOs, is try to improve 
the uh, the quantitative metrics to ensure the integrity of the offset claims that are made. Some of them are greenwashing. Some of them are, I think, of high integrity. So we should be working to do that. But yeah, at the same time, I don't have a problem with giving corporations like United that's just put in a large tranche of investment into direct air capture facilities credit for doing that. I'm not certain how much I want them to be able to claim a specific offset of their emissions as a consequence of it. But I realize simultaneously, if you don't give them some incentive, they're not going to do it. It's a difficult tightrope, right, to, to try to avoid greenwashing and at the same time try to uh, drive that. Because as you suggest, we're going to need trillions of dollars of investment in carbon removal over the course of the next century. Some of that's going to come from government, but a lot of it's going to have to come from the private sector. And so I, I, I want to encourage it and give a tip of the hat to companies uh, that do it. Uh, uh, United's in there, Salesforce, Stripe, Microsoft, Apple um, have all as part of their pledges to get to uh, net zero concept we talked about at the outset by 2050, they include funding an array of carbon removal approaches, everything from planting trees uh, to trying to grind up minerals like olivine to take up more carbon dioxide and so forth. And we definitely want to encourage that. But at the same time, we want to ensure that we're adequately measuring what we get from it and that we adequately characterize what the risks are. Again, the environmental and social justice issues that we talked about before. So it's a, it's another complicated convolution upon all the complicated convolutions of climate policy that we have already. What do you think is the, the biggest lesson that we've learned in the past year? From everything, from what's happened with COVID, what's happened with climate, what's happened with the election, everything that's happened. And what gives you the most hope going forward? I think the biggest lesson, this is something we've talked about before, but I'd emphasize it again. The biggest lesson that we have is that we've talked in the abstract for many years about the fact that we have to reduce uh, emissions by 7% annually to get to where we need to be. And we were never anywhere near that. We've been growing every year or most years up until recently. So this year we actually did get uh, what, what most uh, policymakers tell us we need, a 7% reduction. But only in the face of economic despair. So one of the lessons is that if we're going to get a 7% reduction in emissions without wrecking the economy, we clearly need structurally uh, to change how our economy produces goods in a way that reduces emissions without negatively impacting the economy. So this discussion in the UNEP report about structural transformation of the economy uh, clearly was empirically demonstrated by what we saw in the last year. In terms of hope, again, one of the things that the UNEP report emphasizes is that um, you now have a majority of countries in the world on record to get to uh, uh, carbon neutrality by 2050. And that number has doubled in a couple of years. And I think that's hopeful. It, it doesn't necessarily mean that they will get there. But when they put themselves on record to do it, it does create some pressure uh, to start taking measures uh, to get ourselves there. And I think that's hopeful. And I think the fact that the U.S. will, uh, the largest industrial producer of greenhouse gases, will be part of the Paris Agreement again, and hopefully making commitments 
uh, that are substantive will encourage other countries who are competitors of the United States, whether it's the European Union or China, uh, to be willing to do more than they would have if we were, we had gone our own way. And so uh, that gives me hope also. Will Burns of the Institute for Carbon Removal Law and Policy at American University, wrapping up this edition and this season of Bionic Planet. 2021 is shaping up to be a pivotal year for climate policy. And if you think I'm doing a good job of translating these issues into plain English and putting them into context, and you want to hear more, then help me give it to you by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash bionic planet. There you can support me for as little as $1 per episode and with a monthly cap. This way, if I don't manage to generate an episode in a month, you don't get charged. And if I manage to crank out a ton of episodes, you don't get whacked either. The address again is patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. You can also help others find the show by giving me a five-star review on whichever podcatcher you access me through. Remember, the more stars I get, the more ears I get. And the more ears I get, the more minds I can reach. And we have to reach hundreds of millions of minds if we're to meet the climate challenge. We can do it if we all work together. Until next time, I'm Steve Zwick in Chicago. Thanks for listening.